Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast. I'm David Peters, the host. Uh, when I was an army chaplain, my soldiers called me Padre, and they asked me all kinds of questions about life and love. And so that's what I've been doing on this podcast, along with posting the sermons that I preach in various churches. But I thought I would take a little uh, different approach this uh, series and work through uh, some of the material from my book, Post Traumatic God. It's my second book, and it's about how traumatic experiences like war, and you could apply this to any traumatic experience that people have, that you've experienced or other people have experienced, and how those experiences change our view of God, and how that can also be a fruitful place for theological reflection. So we're not there yet, but uh, stick with me and we'll, uh, I'll try to make that case. But uh, I'm going to read a little bit from Post Traumatic God. Uh, which is not available in audiobook, so this is the only place you'll hear it <clears throat> uh, read to you. But uh, I want—I encourage you to, um, or thank you if you've already read it, and uh, of course I encourage you to support the Episcopal Veterans Fellowship and Church Publishing, who publishes it by buying a copy or borrowing it from the library or asking the library to, to stock it. Uh, but this is um, the chapter titled To Hell and Back. And the title of the book is Post-Traumatic God, How the Church Cares for People Who Have Been to Hell and Back. I can't ever remember being young in my life. Audie Murphy. The subtitle for this book comes from the 1955 film To Hell and Back, starring Audie Murphy, one of the most decorated soldiers of all time. In the film, a very youthful 31-year-old Murphy played himself in a swashbuckling tale of a country boy turned hero in World War II. He earned a million dollars from the film and starred in a number of westerns. After he died in a 1971 plane crash, a different picture of his life emerged. Medical records from his release from active duty indicate vomiting, nightmares, and other indicators of combat fatigue, now known as post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. We know now he self-medicated his symptoms with drugs and alcohol and reports of violence towards his first wife and more alarming behaviors have surfaced. As a war hero and media celebrity, it was hard for those who idolized him to believe such a great man could have so many demons. Perhaps no one knew. Perhaps no one wanted to know. He had, after all, pitched a sequel to To Hell and Back called The Way Back, which chronicled his homecoming but no one wanted to finance it. The army I served in adored Audie Murphy, formed at Fort Hood, Texas, a base where I served for four years. The Sergeant Audie Murphy Club is an elite organization devoted to developing competent leaders for the army. To enter the club, a soldier must stand before several examining boards, answering questions to demonstrate proficiency. One of the areas of examination is Murphy's biography. Only the official biography can be used, however. To my knowledge, Murphy's PTSD, his self-medication, or any of his trials of homecoming are completely omitted. The founders of the club felt that good army leaders needed only to know his service number, how many films he starred in, 44, and his military awards for bravery. It is little wonder our warriors feel stigma and shame when they struggle in their post-war odyssey. But Murphy did go to hell and back, and one of his many songs captures the loneliness of his condition. It's 
called shutters and boards. Shutters and boards cover the windows of the house where we used to live. All I have left is a heart full of sorrow since she said she'd never forgive. The house that we built was once filled with laughter, but I changed that laughter to tears. Now I live in a world without sunshine. Oh, I wish you were here. Shutters and boards cover the windows of the house where we used to live. All I have left is a heart full of sorrow, since she said she'd never forgive. Last night I dreamed that you came to our house to take an old book from the shelf. If you'll open the shutters, I'll tear down the boards, because I drove every nail by myself. And side note, I used to sing that song for... um, candidates who are going up for their board examinations for the Sergeant Audie Murphy Club at Fort Hood and at Walter Reed when I served there and everyone seemed to appreciate sort of the the comedy of that but also the depth of that song. Back to the text. Ever since I came home from the war in Iraq I see the world differently. At first I thought the world had changed. Later I realized that I was the one who had done the changing. Now, for better or worse, I see everything, including God, through this post-traumatic lens. In this book, I will argue, I am not alone in this post-traumatic vision of God. Although my trip to hell and back cost me dearly, this post-traumatic vision of God is a good thing, a thing that will bring about more human flourishing. The Church needs this post-traumatic vision of God if she is to bring reconciliation and healing to a wounded world. Our English word, trauma, is the Greek word for wound. The purpose of war is to produce trauma in the enemy. Whether the enemy is killed or wounded matters little. All that matters is neutralization of the opposing fighting force. In fact, wounding enemy troops is preferable to killing them since wounded combatants require care from other troops. The dead require very little. In the United States today, there are several million veterans of wars in Iraq and Afghanistan Many of us are wounded physically, psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually. Sometimes all four of these categories of wounds exist in the same veteran. Each one of us is different, and veterans should interpret their own experiences in combat and homecoming. I only know what I went through in Iraq. I only truly know my own experiences, and the fog of war shadows that experience. I've forgotten some events for years. Only, be, only to be reminded of them in a conversation with another veteran. In this book, I offer you my expertise in war and homecoming with the hope my story might resonate with veterans and those who love and care for them. One of the memories that keeps coming back to me happened in a Humvee between Baghdad and a forward operating base, or FOB, south of the city. The vehicle had a 50 caliber machine gun mounted to the roof and a soldier in the turret on high alert. The roads were dangerous, and every car, pile of trash, or dead donkey could be concealing an improvised explosive device, or IED. On the way back from the mission, we passed through an Iraqi army checkpoint on Route Tampa, the main highway from Baghdad to Kuwait. As we approached the checkpoint, a young Iraqi army officer, our ally, was having a heated discussion with an old Iraqi man. It looked like they were delaying the passage of the old man's Toyota truck, The old man was dressed in a long, off-white, traditional Iraqi dress or robe. As we approached the checkpoint, the young soldier stopped talking to the old man. He turned toward us, the approaching American convoy, and looked right at my vehicle. He had a defiant look in his face, and I could see 
see his eyes rest on my chaplain assistant as she sat in the passenger seat. She may or may not have noticed his gaze as she scanned the area for IEDs and other threats. Her M16A2 rifle was ready, and the 50 cal on the roof's turret remained silently vigilant. The young soldier looked at her. Then he looked at me, and then he punched the old man in the stomach. The robe billowed around the soldier's fist until his fist hit the old man's stomach. The old man crumpled in a heap, and we drove on. We always drove on. To stop anywhere was too risky. There, in what was probably the least violent event of the whole Iraq war, something happened to me. Was this where my God died? I I can't be sure. But I know something shifted inside of me. I think about this moment often as I reflect on my time in Iraq. I think about what I could have done differently. I think of how helpless I was to help the old man. I think about how much effort we were all giving to fix Iraq. But this moment made the whole place seem unfixable. Worse events surrounded this roadside punch, a few of which I described in my first book, Death Letter. I try not to get too close to these stories anymore, since I've found they often obscure what I wanted to say about war. Many veterans find it hard to talk about war. For me, this comes from my inability to probe the feelings of the event, feelings of failure and regret for not preventing that big bad thing from happening. The wound in my soul, the moral injury, was in my powerlessness to do good in a bad situation. It was as if I threw the cruel punch, or at least approved of that punch, yea, blessed that punch. Moral injuries are the things done and left undone, and these are legion in a war. War is an upside-down moral universe where the good is bad and the bad is good. In this world, the morality we learned as children is suspended. Don't hit your brother, don't hit your sister. Everyday cruelties abound, and I was part of them, blessing them. Now every time a vehicle I'm riding in slows down the highway, I start to get anxious. The threat of ambush or attack was high in Baghdad, and the chances of attack went up when you slowed down because we were lost or in traffic. This feeling is at its worst when the evil hours begin at twilight. I start a fight with my wife, who is driving, or complain about little things until the people who are with me begin to feel my anxiety. Never stop, not for anything, is the mantra my body lives by. My inner ear knows the trigger, the alarm bells, knows to trigger the alarm bells when when I feel the car slowing down. I had power in Iraq, more power than I have ever had in my whole life. I was part of a team who had the power of life and death in our hands. We could kill and get away with it. We could kill and earn rewards and medals for it. The only one in the whole universe who has the power to take a life is God. Except in war. There, in war, an 18-year-old woman or man has that power. In the world of war, we were the goddesses and gods. But that world ended when we came home, and the power ended with it. Took me a while for me to realize what I lost in Iraq. Sometimes I think it was my innocence. Other times I know it was this godlike power. When I got home from Iraq, my now ex-wife was having an affair with a neighbor. Took me months to figure that out. I was so out of touch with what was happening around me. I was powerless to save our marriage. In that powerlessness, I came to believe God was powerless too. When I asked, 
he refused to answer. So much for the deal we had made. So much for the covenant I had kept. Fear crept into my soul. What I had believed was no longer true. There was no longer any safety with God. There was no longer any safety in the universe. War removed for me the illusion that the world was safe. I lived with this illusion before combat, but after I saw the elephant, the illusion died with the young men and women who believed it. All illusions die, I suppose. Some die in explosions, and others bleed out slowly, without even a whimper. When I arrived in Iraq, we were told to come up with a plan to kill everyone we met. I was a chaplain, usually the only one without a weapon, so I relied on my chaplain assistant. The chaplain assistant was an ordinary soldier assigned to protect the chaplain among other more administrative tasks. Even though she was there with me, I had to be ready for anything at all times. In a few days, I grew used to this state of affairs. I grew numb to the dangers from people around me and from the roads of Baghdad. In spite of my comfort with the uncomfortable, the need to escalate my rage was always smoldering under the surface. Soldiers have to go from zero to 60 in the blink of an eye if they hope to survive the unpredictable dangers of war. This stayed with me when I came home. I rarely felt safe, and the little things would set me off into paranoid rage. It was as if the lid of civilization had been taken off the boiling cauldron of my own internal struggles. I quickly found that alcohol calmed me down, and I began to use it like medicine in large doses. The infidelity in my marriage and the subsequent divorce flipped everything in my life upside down. I was angry at everything and everyone, including God. I felt that God had betrayed me. I felt that since I had been a faithful husband, a good soldier, loving chaplain, and a good Christian, God would hook me up with a good marriage. The divorce reinterpreted my whole year in Iraq. My service in Iraq was no longer a noble event in my life. Now it represented the lull before the storm. With the failure of the marriage, the losses, the death, the tears, the dust, and the punches no longer seemed worth it. And this time, I found that traumatic events have the power to change the entire story of our lives. They can make memories of happy times full of ominous foreboding. When my divorce rewrote the story of my Iraq deployment, I realized I'd been living under a delusion of happiness the whole time. Now the war represented the breakup of my family and the loss of my primary identity. The first assignment I was given in the Army after Iraq and divorce was a year of clinical pastoral education, CPE, Fort Lewis, Washington. There, while my internal identity recalibrated, I found I could no longer write God with a capital letter in my papers. All I could do was write God, lowercase. This raised some eyebrows in my CPE group, but my colleagues were understanding. Most of them had just returned from Iraq, too, and were recalibrating their own theological framework. In the religious community of my youth and young adulthood, this would have been rank heresy. The lowercase God did not have the rules of the God I grew up with. This God did not regulate sex like the God of my youth. At the time, I did not know I was wounded, and that is often what a wound looks like. I was on a quest to find a new way to relate to God with the hope that I could still exist and work as a Christian minister. I liked being with people as they struggled with the trials of life, but I could no longer work for the God I no longer believed in. My search for the post-traumatic God 
was driven by necessity, not by curiosity. And this book contains what I found. Thanks for joining me for that uh, first chapter of Post Traumatic God. And uh, when I think about writing this first chapter, and when you write a book, you often write, or I at least do, I don't know what other people do, work on that uh, first chapter last because um, even though you've written something there originally, you realize that the book has taken twists and turns that are unexpected. And so you must tell the reader what to expect in that opening chapter. And so, um, I remember doing that in this chapter and really focusing, trying to focus on that subject of moral injury, which when I wrote this book was a very, very, very emerging topic in the literature and now is is mentioned and in, in, in has entire books dedicated to it, numerous books. So thankfully, moral injury has become a bigger subject for veterans to contemplate when they try to examine their own life and experience and have that moral injury lens, those things that are done and left undone in war. I find that that's a really particular place the church can address is um, the moral injury that veterans often feel. And uh, I found that that um, reflection on the word trauma, the English word trauma, going back to the Greek word trauma, uh, meaning wound, was uh, really helpful for people as I traveled around the country and shared some of these insights with them. Um, that not Most people didn't really know what that word means. I mean, it's an English word now. Um, but they didn't know that it's actually found in the Bible. And we'll explore that in a, in coming chapters. But um, this is a an old book now. It's, uh, you know, 2016, I think it came out, finished in 2015. It's now 2019. Here we are in the middle of a, of a um, or beginning of a year that is seeing political chaos, a year that is seeing uh, cultural upheaval, um, not unprecedented, probably, and for many, um, from any perspective, but certainly um, from my perspective, this is a, a new new world that we live in, and the lingering effects of Iraq and Afghanistan are still very much present in our society. Uh, I can't help but think that my involvement in Iraq and all of our involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan has had a direct effect on the political upheaval of our day, that um, the destabilization and the uh, our ability to to uh, go in and mess with other nation states and cultures, uh, we should have expected that to happen to us in a way that would be equally traumatic. Uh, I think Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was right in his last sermon he preached in Washington D.C. at the Washington National Cathedral at the Canterbury Pulpit. He talked about how our involvement in foreign wars, he was referencing Vietnam, destabilizes and hurts everyone in the world, including us, including uh, nations that we're not really even focusing on. Because these, because wars have ripple effects, uh, ripple effects in per- people's lives and also in politics and everywhere. And I think we can see that pretty clearly when we examine uh, the 2016 election and as we gear up for another election, um, now, with a, even a, a deeper sense of alienation uh, with our neighbor and our neighbors in this country, I think uh, we can see a direct correlation there that I couldn't see when I wrote this book. I probably would have dedicated more space in that first chapter to uh, to uh, to politics because I think that the personal must become political. And what I mean by that is that um, when it comes to trauma, 
and we'll use the example of people who have survived sexual trauma. Uh, the move for many years was to give them counseling, to counsel people who had been sexually abused and sexually assaulted, you know, counsel them for PTSD, counsel them for adjustment issues related to those traumas, and try to help them uh, learn how to live life again after feeling their world turn upside down, feeling that nothing is safe anymore. And yet there comes a time after you've counseled hundreds of people for the same kind of trauma in almost very similar circumstances that you, as a counselor, stand up and say, hey, maybe we should make this illegal. Maybe we should do things with our laws to change them so that there are less sexual assaults and less sexual trauma. Um, and that's when the personal becomes a political. It's not a politics thing, Democrat, Republican type politics kind of thing, but it's a way of saying we as a society need to take some steps to reduce the numbers of people. And we can't make all bad things go away. It doesn't seem like that works in this world very well. But to reduce the the uh, the the ability for these things to happen in such frequent numbers. I think we can see that with uh, shootings in public institutions and in schools and workplaces. Uh, perhaps we should, we certainly need to counsel people who have been through those traumas individually and, and, and love and, and get together as a community and support them in their journey after their trauma and after their loss, often of people they love dearly. But then we need to look at the bigger picture and say, what kinds of things can we as a, as a culture, as a society, as a nation do to reduce the likelihood that these things will happen? Again, it's not naive saying that we can make all bad things go away if we want to. I think we need to do that with uh, combat trauma and say, what are the conditions that create combat trauma? What are the conditions that create moral injury? Um, with moral injury, we know that there are certain situations that create more moral injury than others. When people are put in situations, when military leaders and, and soldiers are put in situations where the line between good and evil is very hard to determine, where they are uh, pressured into doing things that they feel are immoral, or later upon reflection will feel that are immoral, probably the most notable example that's often shared at our moral injury conference that we have every fall in Austin, Texas, is the killing of prisoners. Um, there are many stories from Vietnam that have been told at our conference that um, where people have said they, they shot prisoners. There, were, there was a necessity to move on. There was always a sense of urgency and always in the moment certain statements were made to justify what they did. But here they are, these uh, men, many years later, reflecting on that moral injury, that wound of the soul, wondering if they're good anymore, what they can do to undo what they did. And we'll address that later in future podcasts. But uh, th So that's one way we can look politically at moral injury and say, what can we do to reduce it? Probably the best book about the politics of moral injury that I've read and there's probably better ones out there right now. This is a, um, a book from a few years ago by Robert Marr, spelled out meager, but pronounced Marr in, in good Irish pronunciation. Um, probably addresses this the best. 
that certain kinds of wars create more moral injury. And uh, his argument there is that just war tradition, as it's understood in the present era, as justification for preemptive strikes, creates moral injury uh, in legion-level uh, legion moral injury, where it seems to affect so many people. I think that's a compelling argument to think about. But this first chapter, I wanted to use Audie Murphy to kind of show that, that um, it's okay not to be okay. And yet our culture, even the culture like ours that is very attuned to, to mental illness, um, it's publicized and um, there's a lot of work do- being done to destigmatize mental health issues and treat them as health issues, but there's still a lot of stigma left. And we would think many, most people in the army, if you talked about Audie Murphy, would not know about his combat trauma, would not know about his adjustment issues after he came back from World War II. And I put that in there because I wanted to show um, my people, especially Army veterans, the, <coughs> excuse me, the ones I served with, that um, here's this hero that also struggled, and it's okay for you to struggle too. So if you know somebody that is struggling with moral injury, or the spiritual effects of PTSD, I encourage you to to encourage them to uh, reach out to the VA to go there and uh, show up in person and go through an intake there, which is something I've done in my life, or to um, seek out uh, a, a licensed counselor to talk about those issues with, to call the hotline for suicide that the VA provides or other hotlines for mental health, but to do something, and you can certainly contact me, and I'd be glad to help um, with with um, with advising on that situation. But there are really good uh, places to find healing, and yet uh, it's really hard to take that step. So, if Audie Murphy took a couple of those steps when he was here on this planet in life, I think uh, the rest of us can consider it too. So, again, thanks for listening to Dear Padre podcast. As we work through the post-traumatic God and reflect on that, we're going to get into church tradition and the Bible and some other characters that show up um, when we reflect on the post-traumatic God. And one character in particular, Paul Tillich, we're going to get to uh, reflect on him a little bit, who, um, well, as we will find out, um, has a compelling story as well. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time on the Dear Padre Podcast.